Father, as we open Your Word together, we ask, Lord, through Your Holy Spirit that You would guide us that, uh, and, and open our minds and our hearts to receive from You this morning uh, what You have for us, that uh, we will indeed be strengthened in our walk with You and drawn closer to You and closer together. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Before we uh, read this morning's uh, scripture, I would like to share with you, um, we had mentioned uh, several weeks ago that uh, uh, we were expecting another grandchild, and then a few weeks ago we mentioned that there were some complications, and this last week uh, uh, we lost the baby, and so... uh, we just would, again, solicit your prayer support, especially for, for Jessica and Chad. And, uh, and along the way, they, they, you know, if you know my daughter, you'll you understand this. But, but if you don't, I want to share this with you. And that is, is she, she really isn't anxious for people to come up and talk about it or talk to her or whatever. And so uh, if, you, if you see her, just say hi. And if you feel compelled, put your arm around her and just give her a little hug or something. That's fine. But she really doesn't want to be discussing it at this point. So I appreciate that. And uh, also in the process, uh, over the next uh, several months, they're going to have to make some decisions as to whether they're going to pursue to have another child or not. And so uh, we appreciate your prayer support there as well. And for the whole family. Uh, grandparents are just, just almost as upset. And uh, especially Chad's mom, this, this the only grandkids that she has is the one that, that, that they had so far. She was excited about this as, well, as we were. So I, I don't mean to be a downer, but I really needed to share that with you this morning. I didn't think it was fair to put that on to BJ to share with you. So I uh, appreciate it. This morning we're looking at the, the, a series that we're starting. If... It, I've mentioned this a few times as we were getting close to the Beatitudes that in talking about the Beatitudes and, and the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of like the, the, uh, uh, a Christian manifesto, if you will, of what it is to be a Christian. And in order for everything that we're going to talk about on the, the Sermon on the Mount, something else has to be in place for it to work. And that is the idea of the church. And who, and who the church is. And uh, we've already shared from the, the, the scriptures in Hebrews, one that's very familiar to you. Uh, but I want to start, uh, if you will, at the beginning. And so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses Luke records for us the sermon that Peter preached on the first first gospel message, if you will, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I say that is because some people say there were some gospel messages in the Old Testament and and all the way through, but this is the first one after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, Peter, in the midst of his sermon, is preaching this, Jesus God raised up. 
and of what we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out that this you, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For, this promise, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was a festival time for the Hebrew people. Uh, it was a basically a initially a, a harvest festival tied to, to uh, the agricultural seasons, and and then it, if you will, kind of grew into a, a celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so the day of Pentecost was very important to them, and its proximity to Passover, 50 days after Passover. Uh, so, basically, if you will, uh, Sunday, uh, May 24th would be officially Pentecost Sunday. And the time, uh, a number of Jews that would come to Jerusalem for Passover would actually stay until that, that seven, spend that seven week gap in Jerusalem to be there for Pentecost as well. And people will, you know, we look at it today and we just, we don't think about, boy, how can you just, uh, you know, you know, you, you go for a, a particular celebration at a particular point in time and then you go back home. You've got to remember the, con the, the context of traveling back then initially. Most of the people that were traveling to, or I shouldn't say most, but a big number of the people who were traveling to Jerusalem for Passover were traveling from extreme distances as far as that time would go. It could take them weeks and even months to get there. In other words, it could be a whole year's pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem and back to their home, whether they were coming from Spain or Gaul or the Middle East or outside of the Palestinian area, outside of the Roman Empire even. 
and, and so in North Africa and just so many different places that they would be coming from. Most of them that were coming these long distances might be able to make this pilgrimage once, maybe twice in their lifetime. And so it was a special time. And they geared it up in such a way that they could go and when they got there, to spend an extra few weeks on a journey that was going to add up to a year or, or, or lots of months at least wasn't really significant. And they that way were able to participate in this whole season of, of worship and time and celebration. So understand that there's a, there's a large group of, of non-native Palestinians. Not, you know, they're Jewish, but they're from large different, you know, places. They don't all speak the same languages, although they would all you know, be able to communicate together in, in Aramaic a lot of the times and certainly Hebrew. But the idea was that they were uh, ones who had traveled these long, far distances and they would stay and visit and fellowship for lengthy periods of time, they would not be surprised to see so many people at Pentecost who were still from so many different areas. It's exactly what happens. And it's no surprise in my thinking that God used that as the perfect time to launch the church. In the book of, of Acts, back in chapter 1, uh, the disciples were, were with Jesus just before His ascension. This is after His resurrection. And uh, basically, for, you know, it was 40 days after His resurrection. And they are still talking with Him in the idea of, you know, hey, are we going to now go into Jerusalem and, and take over? And, and they still hadn't quite got it. Uh, but, but Jesus said, no, this isn't the way it's going to work. Let me tell you what is the next step. I want you to go back into Jerusalem and I want you to stay there and to pray until God gives you the gift that He's promised, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He didn't give any detail about what that was going to look like, but it was basically, you'll know it when it happens. They returned with a mandate that Jesus gave them in addition. I want you to go first back to Jerusalem and have this prayer time. When the Holy Spirit comes, I want you to start, and I'm paraphrasing you know, this, but basically says, I want you to start sharing what you know about me at that point in time in Jerusalem. I'm always amazed at that. If you were the disciples, what was your most recent experience that you would consider a paramount in your thought about Jerusalem and, 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 and Christ? And that would be the crucifixion. The same Sanhedrin that had Jesus turned over to Pilate, the same Pilate that had Jesus crucified, were still in control. It's only been 40 days. And they're being told, you know, go back and wait. And when you have the Holy Spirit, begin to preach and to share what is put into your heart and do it in Jerusalem. Talk about putting something on the line and at risk. You know, that was where he said it's going to start. And he said, not only that, but you're going to preach for a season in Jerusalem and then it's going to go out to Judea and Samaria and then to the outer parts of the world, to the rest of the earth. Start here, spread it to here, and then let it go and you will see it go through all over the earth. And you know, I will share with you quickly, in the first century, uh, Christianity is, is known to have touched the shores of Great Britain 
to have moved clear up into France and Germany and the steppe regions, clear over into the area of, of, of modern-day India and into western China. And I know I've shared this with you before, but amazing things have happened. And I remember when the Clarks, that are, by the way, are going to be here in August, uh, shared with us in their Japan ministry. They're also ministering in Mongolia and other places. But in the northern, one of the northern areas of Japan, in the northern island, a temple was, was uh, uncovered, and it was the, the Temple of Light. And they were trying to figure out how, to, you know, how this tied in with Taoism and the Japanese worship. And they realized it didn't, the stuff they kept uncovering didn't tie in at all. And the nearest thing they can figure is, is that it, it was an outreach, and a first century ch- uh, outreach of, of Christianity in northern Japan. So it spread. <laughs> okay? and, and, and so that was the, the mandate that was given. And that mandate coincided with the mandate that Jesus, you know, we find in Matthew chapter 28. I want you to go out and to make disciples and, and, and those that, that, that listen and are taught and want to receive me, I want you to baptize them and then to teach them all that I have commanded you. We call that the, 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 the Great Commission and we've also used terms like it's the Christian's marching orders. Uh, the idea is that this is what we are here to do. And it coincides with the last things he said to them. And then it says he ascended. They watched. And they looked up. And I, all I can picture is they must have kept looking up because the, there was an, an angel appeared to them and said, why do you keep looking up? <laughs> you know, he has gone. He will return. The way he has gone, he will return. And we have that picture of Jesus coming in the clouds at the second coming, you know, all of that. But he said, in the meantime, go and do what you were told. <laughs> and they did. Well, there, it, 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 we don't know how many were on that, 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 at that point. It doesn't tell us the exact number. Uh, but it does tell us that at, some, at a point, as we read through Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, that there were 120 of them that, were stayed, that stayed together. Now, whether they started with more and some of them filtered, or broke off and said, well, we don't know what we're waiting for, but within 10, you know, 10 days after this, after the ascension, the Holy Spirit descended on the group and it says there was 120 of them. And we know the story. The Holy Spirit came on like a, like a rushing wind, like a flood of waters. It was something that was audible, not just to the disciples, but outside of the, where they were because people were stopping and hearing and beginning to gather. What is this we hear? Some of them, not all of them, some of them said, oh, we're hearing words in our own language. And they started, the, the, the Scriptures list several languages of, of, of foreign, you know, foreign languages that people were hearing in. The interesting thing is it says others were just hearing Confused syllables, if you will, garble, you know, and they said, "Gosh, the, whoever's talking must be drunk." It doesn't make any sense at all. And so, Paul, in sharing, or Peter, in sharing his message, actually uh, begins his message with these words. If you go back to, to uh, verse fourteen, well, actually, you know, thir- I'll pick up with thirteen. <laughs> and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? You know, they were hearing in their own languages. But others, 
were mocking and they said, they're filled with new wine. Meaning it was undiscernible for them. And they must be drunk. And so Peter starts out his message. Stand, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour in the day. It's only, you know, it's only, you know, nine in the morning here. Uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to share from the prophet Joel, from Matthew, or from uh, Psalm 16, and, and, and prophecies of David, things in reference to the fact that there was the Messiah was coming in very specific scriptures about the Christ. And that's where we pick up mid-sermon, if you will, in this picture where I started to share with you uh, that, that let all the, the house of Israel you know, know, verse 36, for instance, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The very last one, part of that message that they would hear. What he tells them again, as I said, he ties these prophecies and scriptures from Joel and David together. And then he says in verse 32, this Jesus, this, this, this one that I've been talking about uh, here, now and then he turns around, this Jesus has been raised up. God's raised him up. And we have seen him. God's made him both the Lord and the Christ. The one whom these prophecies were talking about from David and from Joel. You know, he has made them, he's made this, this Jesus the Lord and the Christ that they're talking about. God has made him both Lord and Christ the Jesus, and this has got to be so, to those who are hearing clearly and understanding and were being touched by the Holy Spirit at this time, they heard what they heard was, and this Jesus whom you crucified must have just crushed them. Because it says they were cut to the heart or pierced to the heart. Isn't this amazing? I think about it. Uh, we're told that this is exactly what the Word of God does. It cleaves through bone and flesh right to the heart this is exactly what happened to the first group of people who heard the gospel, whose ears were open. Not all of them, but 3,000 of them who had actually heard the, 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 the speaking of tongues in their own languages and, and, and now we're hearing Peter speak, were cut to the heart. Their only question in their mind at that point was, what do we do now? What must we do? Peter just point blank. You must repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the way it will go on, and I'm paraphrasing it here, but this is the way it's going to happen now. This is the way it's going to happen for your children. And Far off. Your children's 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 children. This is the way it will go. Once they have been pierced to the heart, their eyes and ears are open, what must they do? They must repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And about 3,000 people were baptized that day and added to the number. What number? The 120. 
So there's about 3,120. No. Uh, it, you know, so the idea is to understand that this is the first message, the beginning, the birthing of the church. The church, I, I put it in my notes, the church begins. The word church here is the word ecclesia. Again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but those who are that write into these big, huge, you know, theological dictionaries, and you get to be someone like me who can go back and read them, and even those are difficult to read. It's not, you know, and looking at that, and sometimes I say it's Greek to me, and then somebody points out, no, that's Latin. But uh, the idea is, is that you can go to these resources, and, and ecclesia is a common Greek word that was being used. It has to do with the idea of those who gather together, those who assemble together. Uh, it's it's a a picture of of uh, those who are called out to gather together. So all of that is is a way of identity. Jesus, in fact, Jesus uses this word himself in Matthew chapter sixteen. In fact, that's the first use of it in the New Testament. And and Jesus is talking and, he, and he's saying, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter's confession, "You are the Lord, the Christ," etc. And and Jesus, and Jesus says, "You know, this is something that God has given to you, Peter. You're not even speaking of your on your own here. This is a, something from the, the the Lord has entrusted with you. This understanding of of who I am." And he says, "Upon this rock, I am going to build my church." And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a lot of discussion about what on this rock is. Because Peter's name given to him by Jesus is rock. Okay? But, you know, and, and certainly God used him dramatically on the day of Pentecost. Okay? So, you know, on, on his first, you know, the first message. But I think it's bigger than, than him. If, you know, and I know that there are denominational groups that basically take the position, no, it's Peter, and the, Peter was the foundation of the church, and he went to Rome and started the, you know, all this. No, none of that. It's simply that I believe that adds to it. There's, in fact, there's three things you can look at. Peter, whose name is Petra, rock. The, the confession of Peter, which is the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ is the Christ. And it's on the cornerstone that it will be built. That's certainly a picture of the idea of the rock. And Jesus is often referred to as the rock of our salvation. And, 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 and so it could be even the inclusion of the idea that Jesus could say, fantastic, you got it, Peter, through the Father has given this to you. And he could even point to himself and say, on this rock, and referring to himself. I don't have to have a clarity here as to which one it is and easily can sit with that picture of it being the concert of all of it. Peter's confession, the reality that Jesus is the rock and that God's going to use Peter as, as, as part of the foundation. The Scripture says it. Jesus is the cornerstone, the, very, the rock that puts it all together. But what the apostles are going to teach, which is what? That confession that Peter just gave, will be the foundation tied to the cornerstone. So it, to me, no matter which way you look at it, it all still comes out to that same place where it all ties together, which is more typical 
in a Hebrew context of looking at something. And so, the ecclesia, the called out, are the church. And I, 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 you can't help but be awestruck when you think about it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Anybody who says, and, and it's been said more than once through history, things don't change. This is the last generation of the church. There is no such thing. First off, the church is eternal. Well, we mean here on earth. As long as Christ tarries, meaning that He waits for it to come to take His church home, there will be a church proclaiming the good news. That is a given fact. The gates of hell. Nothing can... The gates of hell, what is it? You know, we're talking... Death itself is, cannot stand against this. It will always be a, a spokesman, if you will. Even if it's a remnant, it will be there. Isaiah said, gosh, I'm the only guy left. I said, nah, there's at least 7,000. Don't, you know, don't, don't get too stuck on that. You know? So Jesus mentions it in such a way that we can... And by the way, hell is, has been trying to prevail from the very beginning of the church. And we'll get into more of that later on in, in, in another message. But hell's tried. And it hasn't succeeded. And it will not succeed. The, the Scriptures use a number of metaphors for the church. Pictures of, of, of things that we can look at and say, the church is like, and get a picture of it. For instance, the church is like a family. You know, we, uh, we come together, brother, and, and the Scriptures use these terms, family and brothers and sisters, and, and, and so it, it's like a family. Uh, church is like the body, a physical body. It's like the branches of a vine, the branches being the church and the vine being Christ. We're like sheep who hear our Master's voice and follow. We're a bride. We sang it this morning. We're the bride. It has nothing to do with masculine and feminine in the context of any way that we would think about it, but the idea of that, that we are the complement to Christ as the, as the husband. He is raising us up to be His bride and, and, and that's a picture of our relationship with Him. He will be the head. We will be the bride as we come alongside. And, and, and whether He's the body or the family or the, the vine or, or the, 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 the shepherd of the sheep or, or the husband of the bride, He's always the head. We're also, there's, there's a term used for the church that we even used this morning out of, out of Hebrews 11, the fellowship. Grouping of people, of people who come together to fellowship. And the idea is, is to minister one to another. We're, we're called the temple. Built by, and, and, and individually called living stones. A holy nation, a royal priesthood. Exiles and aliens in this world because our home is the kingdom of God, which is not permanent in this world yet. 
when there's a new heaven and a new earth, that'll be a different story. So all of these metaphors used to describe the church so we can get a full picture of, 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 of no matter who we are, we can look at it, we can see it, and say there's, there's something here that we are a part of. Christ is the head and we are, and I'll just use the picture, the body. We'll use that one metaphor for the moment. Christ is the head, we are the body, and He is preparing us to be eternally with Him and to receive what He already has in His inheritance that He has chosen to share with us. And that idea of being a family in Romans chapter 8, we're called the, you know, ones who will have an inheritance that is shared. Jesus says He will share His inheritance with us. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We are children of God. The picture of the body would be we're hands, we're feet, coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're hands, we're feet, we're eyes, we're ears. And, and we come together to, to create one whole. No one of us stands individually and can say, I represent the whole. It takes all of us together. And it takes all of us together bringing our gifts together, ministering one to another in the context of that fellowship coming together. And we see very clearly in the book of, 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 of Acts that they, as soon as they were joined to, to the church, they had repented and been baptized and received the Holy Spirit, they started meeting together frequently. In fact, more often than even once a week. And they were ministering one to another. Whatever the need was, they would, they would come together and determine how to meet that need. Acts chapter 6 says, oh, there was a group of people that weren't getting their needs met, a group of widows. They said, hey, that's not acceptable. And they put it, he said, we need a group of, of men to come from this bigger group of people that, and, and, and to take care of this. And Philip and, 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 and Stephen and others were chosen to take care of the, of the, and meet the need. There's a picture in the Scriptures that says when, when, when the, the, the fellowship of, of believers within a, a group of believers that, that one is mourning, we all mourn together. And when we celebrate, we all celebrate together. Isn't that way a body would be? <laughs> when the big toe hurts, the whole body gets the message. Have you, you, you've had one of those things where you just get that little tiny... I'll use redwood because it really gets it. A little tiny redwood sliver, and because of, of the, the the tannin acid, you know, the tannic acid, I guess it's, it's in there. It seems to get infected easier than some others. But uh, and 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 you go to pick up something and you can feel it, but you can't quite see it. You get the you get the the, the light over it, the microscope. I don't know. I, I for me a a, a handheld. Uh, magnifier hardly works anymore, you know. But you find it, you know, and you try to get it with the tweezers. You can't quite. I come along with my knife and I scrape from what appears to be the opposite direction of where the splinter is, hoping I can get a hold of it and get it out. And it, it doesn't matter. And you think, how can this? It's just such a little thing. Well, some of you in here actually know a, a person that actually has died from a, a, a splinter that they got at the mill while working. 
that you know we need all of us together, and that's the, so when one part hurts, <laughs> the whole body's keenly aware of it, or at least we should be. God intended it that way. That's why He used these metaphors so we could get a picture. Now, there is a picture within the framework of the church to say there is a universal church, meaning that everyone who has ever repented, confessed, received in their heart Jesus Christ as their Savior, has been baptized, and has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you can't become a believer and not have the Holy Spirit. That's automatic. You will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are now a part of the church. There is the universal church, the body of Christ. God never intended us to stop there, though. There's a very clear picture of an establishment of, of church groups, if you will, gatherings all over the Mediterranean that Paul and Peter and others were responsible. In fact, a number of the people that actually left on the day of Pentecost that had heard that, that went home back home, some of them are responsible for having, a, to the best of our understanding, where some churches popped up before the disciples and, and missionaries ever got there. There were, they found Christians meeting together from, from going back to the day of Pentecost and what they heard. Those small groups are what all of the almost all of the epistles are written to one or or, or, or two or three of those those small groups each one to say how the whole church comes together now in individual groups and practices and puts together all that Christ has shared with us about what it is to live together as a body. And, and how to encourage one another and to build up one another. We said in, in Hebrews 10:25, to encourage and 24 and 25, 10, 24 and 25, to encourage and to build up. We're, a, we're the family of God. We're a fellowship of believers interacting together and building up and coming alongside and ministering one to another. Like I said, it, there, there is a structure involved that, that Scripture has put together. But in general, we look at the picture, Christ is the head. Ephesians chapter 1, the last three or four verses talk about that. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 talks about that. He is the head. He is the authority. Uh, all of the authority. In fact, he said it in, in Matthew 28. Uh, he says, all of the authority has been given unto me. He is the head. He is the authority. All that He has said, His Word, which we have in Scripture that has been left for us, is where we will find and understand what that is. And He said, with this authority, you are to take and to expand and to share what has happened to you and the relationship you have with me with others. And he shared with them, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.
want you to understand that 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 the church isn't something, and this is going to sound strange, but just go with me for a minute here. The church is not something that you join. We always talk about joining a church. Don't, I mean, don't we use those terms. And I'm not saying that that's a, well, a bad way to use the term. But in reality, we don't join the church. We become the church. When we confess Christ as our Savior and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't necessarily happen in that exact order, meaning you know, baptism isn't the act of, of salvation. It's the receiving Christ, confessing Christ is the act of salvation. But baptism is a public statement of what God has done in us, that we have died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, with a desire to walk with Christ. Paul says this in chapter 6 of Romans very clearly. You've been buried with Christ. Picture the baptism in the water. You've been buried with Christ, raised with Christ, to walk in a newness of life, in a whole new way of thinking. How do we get there? We give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit on a daily basis as a living sacrifice, to have our minds transformed and renewed so we don't think like the world, but we begin to think like the kingdom of God. And it's a process. But as soon as that happens, as soon as that Holy Spirit is in, as soon as the confession's been made, we are now part of the church. Now, when it comes to the local church, yeah, there are some options. It didn't start out that way necessarily, but there are options as to which home or fellowship or which church that you attend. And, and so there is that sense of membership and joining and you should be involved in a church somewhere, somehow. And we'll get, in, get into all of that stuff later on. But the idea is, is that it's not a place that you join. It is who you are. It's not something that you do. It's who you are. It's not the place you go. It's who you are. Now, if we want to go back to using the vernacular way of looking at, hey, we went to church. I don't, I, I say it myself. Okay? But the reality is, it's the church that gathers together, and wherever we are, the church has gathered. And you don't have to be in a building to have church, so to speak. Okay? You can have church by the riverside, and there were some. You can have church. Uh, and, you know, in, in, uh, in, a, in a home, you can have church here. You can have church in a building that has been, you know, specifically built for that purpose and, and used only for that purpose. You can have church in a warehouse. You can have church in a U-Haul truck. I know where it's been done. Can, it, 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 you know, it's where the body of believers gather together. We are the ecclesia. We are the church. We fellowship together. John uh, Jonathan Lehman, who's uh, 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 part of the staff at uh, the, uh, at a church in Washington D.C. and a part of a group called Mark's Nine. Uh, which is, is wanting this whole idea of getting back to basics in the church. He says the church is a place where we go public. You know, we, we, by, by being a part of the fellowship in a local area, we're declaring who we are. 
You know, people, some people say, oh, I just go off and I just worship in the woods and I do it all by myself. That's not scriptural. You can't find a scripture that supports it. Can you do that? Yes. You can, anytime you want to go out into, into the woods and worship God, yes, that can happen. But that's not the only thing that's supposed to happen. There's a point where you join a group who have made a public statement of who they are. And we're supporting one another and encouraging one another and sharing in the Word together one another. And, and, and not only in baptism as a, as a, as a, as a, as a picture of, of, of being in Christ, but also our communion and breaking bread together. So many people think in terms of, and this is, be, I would say, a secular way of looking at the church, although it creeps into the way we think sometimes, as joining the church as being a part of an organization and or club. It's our service station. Have you ever heard that term used? It's not a bad... Again, don't misunderstand. In a sense, you can look at us as a club. We do a lot of things that a club would do, but we're more than that, okay? And 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 that idea of, of, of joining a club, I, I hate to see it, but say it, but and, and you all have experienced it too. At times, you've seen some organizations that sometimes have more cohesiveness uh, that aren't Christian at all. This, they are a club, an organization, a, a lodge, or a group. Sometimes it appears to have more continuity and family and fellowship than, than some churches do. I really don't care one way or the other. What I care about is as we come together is what is, are we doing. We're not a part of a club, and we're not just a part of an organization. We are part of an organism, meaning the living body of Christ, sharing in the living Word of Christ with a living Christ who is our head. And so we're bigger, more than all of that. I was reading something that I mentioned this this gentleman, uh, Jonathan Lehman, and I was reading something that he wrote, and I and I just thought I'd rather than trying to paraphrase it and give him credit for it, I just read it as he wrote it. Uh, the gathering is important for a number of reasons. One is that we, where where we Christians, and, excuse me, one of the one is that is where that is it's. Our, our gathering, where we Christians go public to declare our highest allegiance. Our highest allegiance. In other words, our allegiance to God through Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is higher than any other relationship we have. Period. Period. If you're swearing allegiance in a sense to some organization is going to interfere with your allegiance to 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 the to Christ to the Father to God in any way you are to shun that and stay with your allegiance to Christ to God to the Father to the kingdom of God it's where we bow to our king we call it worship the pharaohs of the world may oppose us, but God draws His people out of the, of, of the nations to worship Him. He will form His mighty congregation. The gathering is also where uh, our King 
interacts his rule through preaching and teaching uh, the ordinances of baptism and, and, and communion and discipline. The Gospel sermon explains the law of our kingdom. It declares the name of our king and explains the sacrifice he made to become our king. It teaches us of his way and confronts us to in our disobedience and it assures us of his imminent return. Though baptism in the Lord's Supper, the church, through baptism in the Lord's Supper, the church waves the flag and dons the army's uniform of the king. I like that idea again. Our baptism is a public declaration. Our communion is something we do that declares who we are in Christ. It makes us visible. To be baptized is to identify ourselves with the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as well as to identify our union with Christ's death and resurrection. To receive the Lord's Supper is to proclaim His death and our membership in His body until He comes again. What is the local church? It is the institution that Jesus created and authorized to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom, to, uh, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to uh, affirm gospel professors, people who, who profess the faith, to oversee their discipleship and to expose impostors. As I said in chapter 1, we don't join churches as we join clubs. We are the church. And the church comes together and I believe as often as they gather together it shows them breaking bread together. It's one of the reasons to me that it's so important to have communion every Sunday is that significant picture of what Christ has done for us over and over and over again. Not to, to get it to the point where it becomes, oh, communion, but to remind us every Sunday of a Christ who sacrificed his life for us, who said it is finished on the cross, paying it all in every way, shape, and form so that we come to this table and worship him and, and do so with thanksgiving. As we share in, in the bread, who represents his incarnation and his body and his sacrifice and the blood of uh, the pouring out of his life for us. So I'd ask the uh, worship team to to uh, come back in and uh, I would ask the ushers, if you would please, to come and pass the communion emblems out. Hold them until we've all been shared and then we will uh, share it together.
We can only be at rest with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the source of our salvation. In him comes my salvation. And within that picture, what we have is the reality that without Christ's sacrifice, without his love, we stand before God with our sins. Period. And our sins require a holy God to pronounce his judgment and separation. Because of what Christ has done with the words that is finished on the cross and his committing his soul to the Father, his death complete, we have peace with God if we receive that as our covering for our sin. Confess Christ as your Savior. Receive him as your Savior. Believe in your heart that he is the Son of God. And he has done what he says he has done. And that he will do what he says he will do. How often, in a sense, that we, as, as believers, we realize, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's nothing less than daily, that we have blown it, that we have sinned, that we have missed the mark. And we confess in Jesus Christ faithfully, continuously, as restoring us as if we'd never sinned. Justified. Justified. Never sinned. I love that thought and the way it's put that way. And all of it because he allowed his body to be sacrificed for us. And so that's why he took the bread at the last meeting with his disciples the night he was betrayed. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he says, as often as you take it, as often as you share it together, do it in remembrance of me. And sharing the cup. Very, very distinct and clear picture. This is my blood poured out for you. My death to purchase the covenant. The covenant of grace. And as often as we do this, we do it in remembrance of him until he comes again. Father, I would ask this this morning, first and foremost, that you would cause us to never grow tired of sharing the bread and the cup together. That it would always be that sense of refreshment and thanksgiving and also that sense of brokenness over sin, over our sin, not somebody else's sin, over our own sin. That we might actually be in that position as David was, creating me a clean heart. Lord, we realize that that is a daily occurrence in our, in our need cycle. We ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would indeed do that, that you would bring conviction, even cause us to be receptive to your Spirit to receive the conviction. Not because we're trying to earn it, anything with you. You've already done that for us. You already received it. But, Lord, that we might glorify you in our thinking, in our actions, and even through the forgiveness as we receive sin in, in, in ourselves and say, I, I, I know that I have sinned and we humble ourselves, even that, I believe, is that sense where we turn and as we rest in You, it glorifies You. And not with an attitude of wanting to say, oh, let's go sin all the more, but with that attitude of being transformed. And so together this morning, 
all who, who are willing, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to You, Lord, with that intent to say, transform our minds. So we don't think like the world, but we think like citizens of heaven. Open our hearts to, do, to, to be able to do that. And we ask, Lord, that You would constantly pursue us in that. We worship You. We praise You. We thank You for providing a place where we can, can meet together. We call it the church where we can come together to encourage one another. And we ask, Lord, that You would cause us to be not only ones who build each other up, but that we take the Word out and proclaim it to those around us that they might come to know what it is that it is what it is like to be at peace with the God of all creation. Cause us to enjoy you, Lord, in the sense of our relationship with you. Not just to find peace, but to find the joy of your salvation. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close? Uh,